Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. The idea that one must get a formal education and be licensed to be a nurse and care for the sick and injured is a relatively modern one. Before that, anyone needing to be cared for was usually cared for by their family, and local healers would come visit them and provide medicines, usually made from herbs. Only those that could afford it would be attended to by doctors. Hospitals were usually run by monks and nuns, and only those that didn't have family around to care for them went there. Religion and nursing were traditionally tied together, and plenty of hospitals today still have some sort of religious foundation, even if it's in name only. One of the most famous nurses in history helped change all of that, though. Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp, pushed for many reforms in life, and we can thank her for the modern idea of nursing as a professional secular career. She was born on May 12, 1820, to a wealthy English family while they were abroad in Italy, and she was named for the town they were in at the time. Her older sister, Parthenope, was also named for the Italian town she was born in. In 1821, her family moved back to England, and she grew up between their summer home, Leah Hurst, in Derbyshire, and their winter home, Embley, in Hampshire. Her parents were liberal and believed in educating the girls, and they studied history, mathematics, Italian, classical literature, and philosophy, and Florence showed extraordinary abilities in math, and she would use that for collecting and analyzing data later in life. At 16, she became convinced that she had a calling from God to serve others and wanted to be a nurse. In Victorian England, nursing was looked down upon, seen as barely above prostitution at the time, and most definitely not a role fit for an upper-class woman, and something that her parents, even being liberal as they were, would not permit her to do. She met Sidney Herbert, who had been Secretary of War while she was in Rome in 1847, and the two became good friends. Later, during the Crimean War, Herbert would be Secretary of War again, and he and his wife would become instrumental to helping Florence's work in Crimea. Florence was an attractive, charming young woman and was courted by politician and poet Richard Monckton Milnes, but after nine years, she refused his marriage proposal, as she thought marriage would keep her from pursuing nursing. Finally, when she was 30... Her father, thinking if she saw what nursing was like up close, relented and let her go to Germany for three months for training at Pastor Theodore Fliedner's Hospital and School for Lutheran Deaconesses. But she loved it and went for more training in Paris with the Sisters of Mercy. In 1853, she became the superintendent of the Institute for Care of the Sick Gentlewoman in Upper Harley Street. The Crimean War began in 1854. Traditionally, sisters from church organizations would go set up military hospitals to care for the injured and sick soldiers, but the army did not let women near the front in the beginning because the fighting was so ugly. Patients at Skatari had the most basic of care possible, supplies were severely limited, and conditions were filthy. When news got back to England of the miserable conditions, Florence was sent by Herbert with a corps of 38 volunteer nurses to treat these patients. She arrived to an overcrowded hospital that was built on top of a sewer that had flooded, and patients were forced to walk through ankle-deep sewage just to go to the bathroom. Bedsheets and patients' clothes were dirty, bandages were not changed, and rodents were everywhere. The top officials were unwelcoming and expected the nurses to follow orders and not rock the boat on the order of things. That first winter when she was at Skatari, she calculated that about 4,000 soldiers died of wounds and more than 19,000 died of sickness or infection. 
Florence did her best at first, but after a large battle that had them swamped with the injured and they ran out of supplies, she couldn't deal with it anymore and started demanding cleanliness and implemented hygienic practices such as hand washing, regular bandage changing, and campaigned to have the flooding sewer fixed. The British government sent out a sanitary commission, which had the sewer fixed and implemented new regulations for the military regarding their field hospitals and stating the changes Florence was calling for. Over the next six months, the death rate there dropped from about 40% to just 2%. This is around the time she got her nickname, Lady of the Lamp, for going around at night, seeing to the soldiers' needs and their comfort. Back home, the Times wrote, She is a ministering angel without any exaggeration in these hospitals, and as her slender form glides quietly along each corridor, every poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night and the silence and darkness have settled down upon those miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone with a little lamp in her hand making her solitary rounds. The war finally ended in 1856 and Florence returned to England after overseeing the closing of the hospital and back at home she was famous and lauded as a hero. She hated this and thought of the image of the Lady of the Lamp was just a distraction from the real issues within the army medical establishment, and that reform there was needed. Their practices were still based on miasma theory, the idea that bad smells are what got you sick, and Florence pushed for them to adopt practices based on germ theory, which was then the new idea. She put all of her effort into getting a royal commission established to look into preventable deaths during the Crimean War, but the army blocked her. So she worked with William Farr, a government statistician, and crunched the data by hand, working for over a year before finishing. They compared the hospital at Sakatari to a London military hospital and used a civilian hospital in Manchester as a control. According to the miasma theory, the Manchester hospital should be the worst one, but their data showed the exact opposite, with the death rates being far below those in the London military hospital. The hospital in Sakatari originally had the highest rates, but those dropped after Florence's protocols were put in place. Florence blamed this on poor sanitization standards for the military hospitals, claiming that they were so bad it was like taking 1,100 soldiers each year out to a field and shooting them dead. She presented this data to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's government officials in 1856 using coxcomb graphs to show the data visually, making it easier to understand. This was possibly the first time data had ever been presented visually like this. Florence got what she wanted, and a major review was done, with sweeping reforms taking effect. This includes methods for cataloging disease and death rates that were used well into the 20th century. Back in 1855, the Nightingale Fund was set up, and it received a huge amount of donations. In 1860, Florence had 45,000 pounds at her disposal, and she set up the Nightingale Training School at St. Thomas's Hospital, and the first nurses trained here began working at Liverpool Working House Infirmary in May of 1865. This school had three strict criteria. It was secular, it developed its programs in line with scientific advances, and it treated nursing as a career. It was also the first to pay nurses well. These Nightingale nurses were encouraged to travel and set up schools of their own. Over the years, they had set up schools all over the world. The school is now named the Florence Nightingale School of Nursing and Midwifery and is part of the King's College. In 1859, Florence wrote Notes of Nursing, which originally was intended for those nursing someone at home, but became the cornerstone of curriculum at many nursing schools. 
She spent the rest of her life promoting nursing and organizing it as a legit profession. Before her, nursing was something people were forced into doing, and Charles Dickens caricatured this in his character Sarah Gump in the novel Martin Chuzzlewit. This character was portrayed as a corrupt, drunk, negligent, and incompetent. Caroline Worthington, director of the Florence Nightingale Museum, stated, When she, Nightingale, started out, there was no such thing as nursing. The Dickens character Sarah Gamp, who was more interested in drinking gin than looking after her patients, was only a mild exaggeration. Hospitals were places of last resort, where the floors were laid with straw to soak up the blood. Florence transformed nursing when she got back from Crimea. She had access to people in high places, and she used it to get things done. Florence was stubborn, opinionated, and forthright, but she had to be those things in order to achieve all that she did. Florence had gotten brucellosis while she was in Crimea, a chronic infection that would leave her mostly bedridden from 1857 on, so she wrote, writing her books and sending letters all over, campaigning for medical reform all across the country. She believed healthcare should be available to everyone and constantly wrote letters advocating for equal treatment of the poor by nurses and doctors. It was her idea that eventually led to what evolved into universal healthcare in many countries today. Florence wasn't solely focused on nursing, though. She was also the first female fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. She advocated for minority rights, and she wrote Cassandra, one of the key feminist books from the 19th century, detailing how intelligent women are often ignored by less intelligent men. In her later life, she hated getting visitors, preferring to be as private as possible, hating having her picture taken, and being reminded of her fame. She proclaimed, I only want to be forgotten and changed her will to say that she shouldn't have a public funeral and should be buried in an unmarked grave. In August of 1910, she died peacefully in her sleep. Despite her wishes, people lined the road the entire way to her final resting place, and government officials made speeches at St. Paul's Cathedral during a special service. She was buried with a headstone with her name at St. Margaret's Church. Every year, nurses carry candles into Westminster to mark her passing. Another woman across the ocean would establish the American Red Cross after serving as a nurse in the American Civil War. This was, of course, Clara Barton. She was born as Clarissa Harlow Barton in December of 1821 in North Oxford, Massachusetts, the youngest of five children. She was sent to school with her brother when she was just three years old, where she excelled at reading and spelling. When she was around 10, her brother fell from the roof of a barn and received a severe head injury. She took it upon herself to nurse him, learned how to administer his medication, and how to apply leeches, as bloodletting with leeches was a common treatment at the time. She was a child that liked to be helpful, but was also very shy. Her parents encouraged her to become a schoolteacher to help her overcome her shyness. In 1838, she started teaching and received her first teacher's certificate in 1839 at just 17. She taught for 12 years in Canada and West Georgia and did well in this role. After her mother died in 1851, she decided to further her education at Clinton Liberal Institute in New York, studying writing and languages. In 1852, she helped establish a free school in Bordentown, New Jersey, the first ever free school in the state. It was successful, and she hired another woman after a year to help teach more than 600 students, and the town raised funds to build a new school building. But once it was completed, Clara was replaced by a man as principal, as the position of overseeing a larger institution was, quote, unfitting for a woman. She was demoted to female assistant. 
After some time in this new working environment that was harsh on her, she had a nervous breakdown and quit and moved to Washington, D.C., where she began as a patent clerk at the U.S. Patent Office, one of very few women to work in this position and the only one earning equal pay to the male clerks. This is where she was working in April of 1861 when the first federal troops began pouring into the city. Some from Massachusetts were injured in an attack while on the way there and were put up in a makeshift hospital in the then-unfinished Capitol building. Some only had the clothes they were wearing and no bedding, food, or supplies of any kind. Clara joined the other women in taking them clothing, food, and supplies on behalf of organizations like the U.S. Sanitary Commission, although she was never formally affiliated with any of these groups. She collected some of these herself, appealed to the public for others, and learned how she should store and distribute them. She also read to the men, wrote letters for them, and talked and prayed with them. But she knew that although there were those who needed help here, there was a greater need on the battlefields. So Clara persistently asked the government and army leaders to let her go to the front, effectively badgering her way into getting passes to bring voluntary services and medical supplies to field hospitals. She appeared at midnight at a field hospital just after the Battle of Cedar Mountain in Northern Virginia in August of 1862 with a wagon full of supplies, leading the overwhelmed sergeant on duty to later write, I thought that night, if heaven ever sent out an angel, she must be one. Her assistance was so timely. She was known as the Angel of the Battlefield after that, and she served troops at the battles of Fairfax Station, Chantilly, Harper's Ferry, South Mountain, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Charleston, Petersburg, and Cold Harbor. She wasn't satisfied with staying back in the medical units, though, and at Adetitum, she ordered the drivers of her supply wagons to follow the cannon and traveled all night, pulling ahead of the military medical units. With the battle still ongoing, she and her volunteers ran around the field, helping where they could, nursing, comforting, and cooking for the wounded. She wrote about this later, saying, I always tried to score the wounded until medical aid and supplies could come up. I could run the risk. It made no difference to everyone if I were shot or taken prisoner. She learned a lot about the men in the regiments, and near the end of the war, she ended up writing to many families who had asked about the men that were reported missing. President Lincoln helped spread the word that she was doing this and wrote, To the friends of missing persons, Miss Clara Barton has kindly offered to search for the missing prisoners of war. Please address her, giving her the name, regiment, and company of any missing prisoner. She established the Office of Correspondence with Friends of the Missing Men of the United States Army and operated it out of her home in Washington for four years. She and her assistants received and answered over 63,000 letters and identified over 22,000 missing men. The Red Cross would establish a tracing service years later and today is one of its most valued activities. Clara also participated in establishing a national cemetery for Union men who died in Andersonville Prison in Georgia. With the help of a team of 30 military men in Dorrance Atwater, who had made a list of those that died while he was in prison there, they identified the graves of nearly 13,000 men. When Clara went to Europe in 1869, she was introduced to the Red Cross in Geneva. She also read A Memory in Solferino by Henry Dunant, who had founded the Global Red Cross Network. Dunant called for international agreement to protect the sick and wounded during wartime, regardless of nationality, and for the formation of a national societies to give neutral volunteer aid. The first treaty based on his ideals was negotiated in 1864 and ratified by 12 European countries. Then, in 1870, although not allied to the Red Cross yet, 
Cora went with the volunteers of the International Red Cross to help with the Franco-Prussian War. She helped distribute relief supplies to the destitute in Strasbourg and around France. She also opened workrooms to help the citizens there make new clothes. These experiences inspired her, and after she returned to the United States, she corresponded with the Red Cross officials in Switzerland who recognized her influence and that she could help get the U.S. to sign the Geneva Treaty. In 1877, with a letter from the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, she went to appeal to President Hayes for an American chapter of the Red Cross. It took appealing to three presidents, but finally Chester Arthur, the 21st president, signed the treaty in 1882, and it was ratified by the Senate a few days later, with the American Red Cross receiving its first congressional charter, which is a law that states the mission, authority, and activities of a group in 1900. Clara was made the head of the American Red Cross, and for the first 20 years, it was largely devoted itself to disaster relief. In 1881, Clara issued a public appeal for funds and clothing for victims of the Michigan Forest Fire. In 1884, she took 50 volunteers to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to help the survivors of a dam break that had killed over 2,000 people. She even helped Russians suffering from a famine in 1892, shipping them 500 railroad cars worth of Iowa cornmeal and flour. The next year, a hurricane and tidal wave killed over 5,000 people in the Sea Islands of South Carolina, and the Red Cross worked for 10 months to help the predominantly African-American population rebuild their agricultural economy. In 1896, she was the only woman and Red Cross advocate allowed by the Turkish government to intervene in direct relief operations for victims of unrest in Turkey and Armenia. Her last relief operation as head of the American Red Cross was in 1900 when she distributed over $120,000 in financial assistance and supplies to survivors of a hurricane and tidal wave in Galveston, Texas. Clara was the strongest advocate for the Red Cross providing disaster relief as well as services during wartime. During the Third International Red Cross Conference in Geneva in 1884, the American Red Cross proposed an amendment to the Geneva Treaty to expand it to include victims of natural disasters. Known as the American Amendment, it was passed. Several countries honored Clara for her works, like supporting the amendment, and she received decorations like the German Iron Cross for her work in the Franco-Prussian War, and the Silver Cross of Imperial Russia for the supplies during the 1892 famine. Near the end of Clara's time as the head of the Red Cross, and for the first time they started to include sending aid to American armed forces, prisoners of war, and refugees during the Spanish-American War. In addition to leading the American Red Cross, she was also interested in education, prison reform, women's suffrage, civil rights, and spiritualism. She struggled with bouts of severe depression throughout her entire life, but always seemed to come out of it if she was needed after a major calamity. She would get up early and work late into the night. Although she did not consider herself to be pretty, she was somewhat vain about her appearance, her hair in particular. She liked dashes of bold color on her clothes, especially red, saying it was her color. She also wrote quite a lot, nearly daily her entire life, and was a highly skilled speaker. When she gave lectures on her Civil War days, veterans would be moved to tears by her vivid dis descriptions. She eventually faced mounting criticism of her management and abilities, though, and between that and her advancing age, she resigned as president in 1904. She published several books about the beginnings of the Red Cross and the Red Cross Network and wrote The Story of My Childhood, which was meant to be the first of a series of idle biographies, but she never completed the rest. 
She passed away at home in Glen Echo, Maryland in 1912 and was buried in the Barton Family Cemetery plot in Oxford, Massachusetts. Her family donated her papers, awards, and other mementos to the Library of Congress. What is now called the Clara Barton National Historic Site in Glen Echo is run by the National Park Service and is open for daily tours. So these two women were not only amazing nurses in their own time, but their actions and campaigns helped change the world of nursing forever, and we wouldn't have gotten here without them. Being a nurse is now an honored career choice based on scientific care, and many wouldn't have had the help they needed if it weren't for the Red Cross. Once again, we have amazing women who changed the history of the world. That's all for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.